Sony. Hello, Canada. It's Tony here in Saskatchewan. Today's date is March 24th, 2021. Canada has now gone two years and six days without presenting a federal budget. Although we are led to believe there will be one coming on April 19th. Anyway, it's as I said, it's Tony here. You are stuck with me tonight. Uh, Lewis is unable to make it for a show this week, so you have got Tony flying solo. Before we start, I just want to say to my friends at Penguin Publishers, I have just purchased a copy of Jordan B. Peterson's latest book, Beyond Order, 12 More Rules. And the reason I give that shout out to the fine folks at Penguin Publishers, because some of their employees actually cried when they discovered that their boss was make was agreeing to publish this book. So I hope that my announcement that I have bought one of those books will make you fine folks be forced to publish yet one more. And I really hope that there are some more liberal tears pouring out of your eyes because of people like me deliberately buying that book. And I'm not just buying it to make a statement. I actually want to read it. I really enjoyed 12 Rules for Life. And I'm certain that I will enjoy very much reading about 12 more. All right. That done. Let's get on with the show. On the show tonight, vaccine confusion in Canada, big surprise, freedom rallies, worldwide event, even right here in Canada. The Alberta government introduces recall legislation, the Conservative Party of Canada holds a policy convention virtually, and more. We are going to start tonight by talking about vaccines. Now, the most important statistic, I've got to say I am thrilled to announce, Canada, that we no longer are number 57 on the list of countries for vaccinating their citizens. As in, we are no longer in 57th place in the world for vaccinating our citizens. Let that sink in. We were 57th place in the world last week for vaccinating citizens. But no more Canada, because as Anita Anand has been telling us ad nauseum, we have got the greatest portfolio of vaccines. We've been promised we will get 8 million by the end of Q1 and 36 million by the end of Q2 and 80 some million by the end of Q3 and it, it's quite easy to glaze over because the numbers they keep throwing around are confusing. But regardless, we are no longer number 57. This week, Canada, we have moved up, and I am proud to say that we are number 55. We are number 55. 55 in the world for vaccinating our citizens. Now, if that doesn't make me just want to stand up and sing, Oh, Canada, 
I don't know what will. Okay, there's a lot of things that will make me sing O Canada, other than being an embarrassing number 55 in the world. All right. Let's move along and talk about some of these vaccines now. It's really confusing to figure out exactly how many vaccines we have coming. We're being told we will have 2 million Pfizer vaccines coming this week. Well, it's already Wednesday, and I still don't know how many vaccines we have. Obviously, the provinces are ramping up their deliveries, and provinces and the federal government still keep pointing fingers at each other for whose fault it is that we are not getting vaccinated at the rates that we as Canadians believe we should. And we've got delays announced that Johnson & Johnson said, oh, production delays. Moderna has delivery delays. AstraZeneca, well, it's not been approved in the United States yet. So now the United States is going to send some of their AstraZeneca to us. We've got some AstraZeneca from India. And speaking of AstraZeneca, there were some European countries who had paused their use of the AstraZeneca vaccine due to a blood clot issue. Now, here in Canada, of course, because AstraZeneca is approved, the government said, yes, despite the blood clot issue, we still think that this, this vaccine is safe for use, so they have said, go ahead. And I know Lewis and I had talked about this particular one last week, but I wanted to expand on that just a little bit. Now, Theresa Tam and company have all said that, yep, the AstraZeneca is safe. Don't worry about blood clots because these may have just been events that would have happened anyway. That doesn't make me feel very secure. And then I thought, you know what? What? Where are our friends on the left-wing spectrum on this, this particular case? Because if we go back a year, and almost exactly a year, in fact, when our friends on the left were telling us that even one death from COVID is too many, and we need to lock everybody down, even the healthiest people who could continue working and keep the economy going to help pay for the health care of all those who are sick who should be quarantined. Oh, wait, that was what I said a year ago. And what Lewis said a year ago is it yes take care of those who are vulnerable and let everybody else keep the economy going we did say that and actually you could go back in the archives one year and hear us saying that if you chose to listen to those shows again but anyway our friends on the left said oh no we should shut everything down and quarantine everybody keep everybody locked up in fear for the relatively small percentage of people who are vulnerable. And I guess they kind of got their way, didn't they? Because we locked up everybody, even people who are really healthy and have a 0.001% of even catching COVID, let alone dying from it. But nope, they had to be locked up too. So if one COVID death was too many, and we all needed to be locked up, then why now, 
are our friends on the left not saying even one person who dies from blood clots that could possibly be connected to the AstraZeneca vaccine should mean that all AstraZeneca vaccines should immediately be stopped. We can't use a vaccine that's unsafe. But our friends on the left are eerily quiet when it comes to the issue of blood clots and AstraZeneca. And our leaders on the left, Dr. Tam and the like, suggesting that, oh no, it's people dying from blood clots as a result of taking this vaccine are okay now. So draconian measures are only okay when they say it's okay. And I'll refer to some draconian measures a little later in the show too, when it comes to governments in this country. But I do find it just a little disingenuous that our friends on the left have been so silent about this whole blood clots and AstraZeneca issue. Okay, still on the AstraZeneca front. Now, our governments and our uh, medical health officers and scientists, experts, you notice they never name the experts. They just say, experts have said. So I might start using that line if I choose to go do any stumping in the future. Say, experts agree. I don't have to name them because none of our friends on the left do. So the experts now have told us that it is okay to have a four-month interval between shots of, of vaccines in general, the AstraZeneca, Pfizer, Moderna, you name it. And it was there was actually a, a vaccine specialist, and I forgot the lady's name. Her first name was Mona. I forgot her last name now. I'm sorry about that. I should have written it down before the show. Anyway, she had said there is actually no data to suggest for the AstraZeneca vaccine that a four-month interval was going to be okay. As a matter of fact, she accused AstraZeneca of cherry-picking their data as far as vaccine efficacy is concerned, and that the 62% number initially reported was probably more accurate than the 80 percent number more recently reported and she had said that actually studies had shown that with AstraZeneca that after three weeks the efficacy actually began to decline and by the time four months came along it was basically down to zero so really if they were going to expand the AstraZeneca doses and extend them to four months we were pretty much wasting our time. Combine that with the fact that this batch of AstraZeneca doses we have now is actually set to expire at the end of April. So there's that. I guess they would wait for the next batch. And even though there's little data because there was little research done with elderly populations with AstraZeneca. Theresa Tam and the fine folks at Health Canada have decided that, oh, you know what? The AstraZeneca vaccine is going to be okay for the seniors after all. Again, our friends on the left, 
who have been telling us for a year, follow the science, 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 follow the science. There's no science to follow. So now, because the federal government has done such a horrible job on vaccine rollouts that now they're just going to roll the dice and say, yeah, you know what? Let the seniors have that vaccine. And one expert and had even said that we're essentially doing human guinea pig trials and human trials on our own population. That doesn't make me feel very good, but the government says we all need to get vaccinated. Everybody who wants one. Now, by no means am I an anti-vaxxer, but please, for the love of God, put Lewis and I at the very back of the vaccine line. Because we have both said we're not anti-vaxxers, but neither of us are interested in taking a vaccine that we really don't know much about. And the more I learn about AstraZeneca, well, the less comfortable I am with it. Right, now let's move on. There was a freedom rally on this past Saturday, March 20th, and it was a worldwide rally. And there, there was actually a rally right here in my city of Saskatoon. There were rallies in Calgary and Toronto and other cities across the world. In, uh, in Amsterdam, for example, I saw a video from Amsterdam where there was an entire street that was absolutely flooded with people, uh, numbering in the thousands. And here in Saskatoon, a relatively small city, about 300,000 souls, a good friend of mine had posted some videos on social media, and the turnout was amazing. There were... The police reported there were, were hundreds of people. I would guess they were were well over a thousand, if not even into the thousands of people there. I unfortunately was not there. I wanted to be. I got stuck at home playing amateur plumber, the joys of home ownership. Anyway, my apologies for not being able to make the rally, but it was a very well attended rally and I think governments around the world, not just here in Canada, really need to take notice of that. People are tired of this. People are have had enough of lockdowns, have had enough of their civil liberties being violated by governments who really have no more justification for violating those civil liberties. Case counts are on the decline. Fatalities are on a steep decline. And yet, here in my own province of Saskatchewan, to this day, we are under a state of emergency. Now, I know my friends on the left, again, will say, oh, we have to keep in the state of emergency because this way we can access that emergency funding. Sometimes it's not all about what you can get from the government. But I guess, to, <laughs> what am I saying? Leftists don't really understand that part of it, do they? Now, I noticed it's in the videos, that, and if you watch the rally in Amsterdam, it's people are packed in like sardines. It's a very, very busy street. And uh, as a side note, 
Amsterdam is a beautiful city. If you have never been, I highly recommend you go at least once. I loved Amsterdam. It's been many years since I've been there, but beautiful city. Anyway, I did notice there was very few people wearing masks in that photo. And I saw the videos of the rally here, very few people wearing masks. Now, from my standpoint, I absolutely could not care less if people wear masks or not. And to me, if people were allowed to go to a Black Lives Matter rally last summer here in this very city and not wear masks, and there was no, quote, super spreader event as a result, then why not wear masks to a freedom rally, which will not turn into a super spreader event. And police were there and keeping the peace, as uh, they say, and there and it was peaceful. There was just some speeches and people who just want to stand up for their freedom. So fantastic. Now, why do I bring up the masks part? Because honestly, I think for myself, I probably would have had one just because this whole social distancing might not have been as easy to accomplish. And I don't know, being outside, maybe we would be okay after all. But perhaps I'm getting too accustomed to having a, to put one on. So anyway, what I think is interesting is that in, in Saskatoon's capital city of Regina, Saskatoon, sorry, Saskatchewan's capital city of Regina, only two days after the Freedom Rally in Saskatoon, there was no Freedom Rally in Regina, yet cases of, of variants, as they call them now, what, they don't call them mutations anymore. Interesting. Anyway, cases of variants have gone up in Regina, and so now the Saskatchewan government has introduced another lockdown for Regina where there was no rally, remember? So no super spreader events. So maybe a lockdown isn't the answer. Of course, they're not calling it a lockdown. It's not a lockdown. But we want you to stay home. We want people who can work from home to work from home. Restaurants and bars will be closed for dine-in service and we'll have to Offer curbside, pick up only. So it's not a lockdown, but it's all the same rules that applied when we were in lockdown. And people wonder why we distrust government in this country. Anyway, I will get into the Regina situation a, a little more later on. Um, right now, I want to give, go and talk about our neighbors to the west in Alberta. In Alberta, they've introduced recall legislation. Now, this was actually one of the cornerstone planks of Jason Kenney's campaign two years ago to uh, to win the, the premiership of Alberta. And finally, his government has followed through. So kudos, good for them. It's not passed into law yet. This has just now been introduced to, you know, as a bill in the legislature to become law. Now, they've based this on the British Columbia model of recall. And I don't know if they're going verbatim with the, the British Columbia legislation or not, but here's kind of the Coles notes, how it's going to work in Alberta. 
So it's been introduced and it's going to be a very, I shouldn't say a small window, but there was going to be a certain window within which the recall can be initiated. So citizens cannot attempt to recall an elected official provincially or municipally in Alberta until 18 months after an election and then no later than six months in the lead up to the next election. So that that means there's a two-year window that they can initiate a recall in. Now, recall applies to every member of the Legislative Assembly and every elected official on the municipal level. So mayors, city councillors, county reeves, county councillors, school board trustees. So anybody who is elected to office in a provincial or municipal role in Alberta can be subject to recall. Now, the threshold for recall seems quite high, and I will speak to it. Right now, they're suggesting that to initiate the recall process, they will uh, whoever whoever wishes to initiate the recall process first has to apply for a petition from the chief electoral electoral officer which is not really as difficult as it sounds even though we are dealing with government but they make that application and at that point in time they have to get signatures from 40% of the eligible voters in that particular area so if it's an MLA within that particular constituency that the MLA represents, the petitioners need to get 40% of the eligible voters in that constituency to sign in order to initiate that recall. Now, 40% of the total electors is actually quite a big number because if you consider that maybe 60% of eligible voters actually get out and vote in elections nowadays, which is an embarrassingly low number, I will say, it's going to be very difficult even to get 40% of those people out. But 40% of that 60% share really means only about 25% of registered voters. So when you're talking about 40% of registered voters you really need to get basically a majority of the people that actually voted in the previous campaign to initiate that recall. Okay, now that might seem like a very, very large hill to climb, and it is. But hear me out. I actually think that's not a bad idea because with the electoral system we have, because we have multiple parties in elections and often four, sometimes five different candidates on a ballot. No candidate or few candidates, I should say, are going to win with more than 50% of the total votes. And realistically, candidates can win with 35 to 40% of the total votes cast. Now, as I said before, usually only about 60% of us 
get off our duffs and vote in the first place. So if you're talking about the number of eligible voters that actually voted for the, the winning candidate, well, you're talking maybe 20%. So it would be very easy if you were to say that only that 40% only of those people that voted to sign because then you would just have or could potentially have a bunch of very sore losers from other parties basically just getting their supporters to gang up on the candidate who won because they only had about 30% support or 35% support or even 40% support. That means, and you hear this from the left every single election in every single riding that they don't win, you will hear the left say, oh, 60% or 65% of people voted against candidate X who won. So, you know, then they say what an affront to democracy that is. So imagine if you would, those leftists who didn't win, or even people on the right who didn't, who chose not to win, let's be fair, the losing candidates trying to garner up support to recall that MLA mayor or whatever, just out of spite because they think they can get away with it because they believe the election should have gone to them. So I actually think it's a good thing that the legislation states 40% of eligible voters, because then you've really got to have people who are ticked off at this elected official to get them out of office. So Will it be very difficult to recall an MLA? Yes. Should it be difficult to recall an MLA? Absolutely it should. Because any elected official worthy of being in office is not going to make everybody happy all of the time. So there are going to be people constantly who want that person out of office. And... Look at comments on social media pages for any elected politician. You're going to see a lot of haters. So I actually don't mind this 40% of eligible voters threshold on the recall legislation. Now, on the other side of that coin, in British Columbia, I don't know what the threshold number is there in British Columbia. I know it's high. And in 25 years, that British Columbia has had recall legislation since 1995, 26 years, sorry. In 26 years that they've had recall legislation, only six times has recall been attempted on an elected official in, in British Columbia. And only once was the recall, I can't even say successful, but only once did the recall result in an MLA resigning their position before the recall could be could be followed through with. So we can't say that recall is really being a success in British Columbia, but at least citizens have taken the initiative to try it. So I say more power to you, Alberta. Good for you. I hope that it works out and I would like to see similar legislation keep moving east 
all the way across Canada. All right, let us move along, and we'll talk about the big story this this week, and that is the Conservative Party of Canada held a virtual policy convention, and of course the the media, being the, the mainstream media in Canada, seen as they are effectively a media arm and a propaganda arm for the Liberal Party of Canada, yes, I said it, they took the opportunity to seize upon a motion that was defeated, which was going to put in writing that the Conservative Party of Canada, I don't remember the exact wording, but admitted that climate change is real. And it's pretty hard to dispute that. And we've talked about that on this show before. And I will get into that more momentarily. But of course, what the media jumped on was that 54% of membership said, no, we're not accepting that motion as it's presented. And it was probably more because of other wording in that motion. But regardless, it makes the Conservative Party of Canada look like a bunch of knuckle-dragging mouth breathers because... They deny that climate change is real, so they're climate deniers. So, of course, almost immediately, liberal politicians across the country were jumping on that and calling out the Conservatives for being climate deniers. And there was even a guest on Power Play who tried to get that issue in while talking about something completely different. And kudos to you, Evan Solomon, by the way, for shutting that lady down and saying, no, we're not getting partisan we are just talking about issues so good but let's expand more on this the, this climate change thing Aaron O'Toole made it very clear that the conservative party was going to go into this next election with a climate plan with a plan on to how to how to deal with climate change now whether you agree that that is necessary or not is up to you but in Mr. O'Toole's opinion, that is part of the reason that Andrew Scheer and company were unsuccessful in the election in 2019. Now, you certainly heard Lewis and I go off an awful lot on Andrew Scheer and company for losing that election in 2019. The lack of a climate plan, I don't know, was the biggest reason that they that Mr. Scheer lost that election. But that's what Mr. O'Toole felt. And he certainly ha is within his rights as leader to suggest that the Conservative Party needs a climate plan. And I'm not even saying that they don't. However, the membership, I think, was really taking that vote as a rebuke to Mr. O'Toole in general. And you've heard me comment about this many times because of Mr. O'Toole's campaigning as the true blue conservative to the right of Peter McKay. And then as soon as he won the leadership, started sprinting to the left and begging the, the mainstream media to notice how left wing he really is and how, 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 how liberal light he is and how he's taking this party to the center. And look, look, we're, 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 we're almost like Trudeau, just not quite as radical as Trudeau. And You've heard me lambaste him several times for that. And I think that was a shot across the bow by membership 
taking that vote just to say, you know what? The grassroots are still in charge here. So I don't think that the Conservative Party of Canada is full of quote-unquote climate deniers. I think it's full of some freedom-loving individuals who still believe in democracy. That said, Mr. O'Toole essentially ignored that vote and said, and this is what I love, I'm the boss, I'm in charge, we will have a climate plan. So, um, great, we just have another dictator like Trudeau. So I guess Mr. O'Toole was right in his sprint to the left saying, see, I'm kind of like Trudeau, just a little bit lighter version. And he's proving it. Now, in his wind-up speech to the convention, and I'm actually, I, I will admit, it was a very good speech. If you have not heard his speech, look up on YouTube and give it a listen. It gets a little awkward when he flips back and forth from French to English because whoever the translator is that CTV hired to to follow this speech really should be fired. Um, when you when you hear the speech and you hear the translator translating his and Mr. O'Toole's French into English, the man is horrible. And there was actually a couple of times where he was stumbled with his words and before he was able to begin to translate what Mr. O'Toole said, Mr. O'Toole had already flipped back to English. It was actually quite pathetic. I, I don't speak French, I admit, but I was actually quite embarrassed for this man that he could not seem to follow along to translate Mr. O'Toole's French to English. And all I could think was, for a national TV network, I think CTV could do better. All right. Anyway, in Mr. O'Toole's speech, he did, he made a very kind of faint suggestion that carbon taxes should not be borne by average working Canadians. And, hey, bravo. I could not agree more with that sentiment because I have never been a fan of a carbon tax and Canadians are overtaxed as it is. I don't see that changing, even if Aaron O'Toole wins government, unfortunately. But at the very least, he hinted, alluded, danced around, but kind of said that carbon taxes for individual Canadians, bad thing. He also danced around, alluded, hinted that perhaps carbon taxes should be borne by, quote, heavy emitters. What Mr. O'Toole, Mr. Trudeau, anybody who is in favor of a carbon tax does not understand, or at the very least, they think we don't understand is that the heavy emitters, the big companies don't pay taxes because they do. I mean, they, yes, they obviously submit taxes to the government every year, but they just work those taxes into their pricing structures and pass those costs right down to you and I, the consumer. Don't believe me? Well, the government recently 
added what they call the Netflix tax. They're told Netflix, you have to start paying GST. Did you notice your Netflix bill just went up by a few bucks as soon as that the announcement was made? Because sure, they'll pay the GST, tack it onto your bill, and charge it back to you. So Netflix is not paying that GST. You are paying it on their behalf. And that is exactly what is going to happen when these, quote, heavy emitters have to pay heavier carbon tax. So it's... It's unfortunate that you and I, average Canadians, we get this, we can see this, but yet our politicians think that we are stupid. And that's really all it is. They just think that we are stupid. Now, Mr. O'Toole, in this speech, did a very good job in, in I guess, making his case why, the, why we should be voting Conservative. And good time to do it good when he's winding that up because i mean it it is a, a pre-election document because there will be an election this spring lewis and i have talked about this i'm on board with his prediction there will be an election this spring late in the spring and so he made his pitch uh, why people across the country should vote conservative he uh, took shots at some of the other parties all of the other parties the major parties anyway he you know why Block voters, for example, in Quebec should consider the Conservatives. Why disaffected Liberals in British Columbia should vote Conservative. Why NDP supporters should vote Conservative, suggesting that the NDP has abandoned the working class. And that's an easy case to make, by the way. A very easy case to make. So he, he did well there, and he actually even took some shots at... The Wexit movement in Western Canada suggesting that disaffected people, and he specifically pointed out in Alberta and Saskatchewan, why they should continue to support the Conservative Party of Canada and not vote for the, the Maverick Party, who is, which is the new name of the Wexit Party. And I'm going to talk about the Maverick Party just a little bit because I think they have a horrible strategy, so I'll I'll get to them after I finish with Mr. O'Toole here. So he made his pitch and I actually thought he made some really good points, talked about unifying the country. He hit on all the good talking points he should have. And most importantly, he framed what I believe is going to be his election pitch. And I believe that what Mr. O'Toole wants the next election to be about is about post-COVID, about our recovery from COVID. He was stressing the economy a lot, and he should. Um, good for him. So he came out with a five-point plan. Now, his five-point plan, one was going to be secure jobs. Two, secure accountability. Three, secure mental health. Four, secure the country. Five, secure our economy. Okay, secure jobs. That one that one seems pretty clear. That just means you grow the economy, get people working, get people back to work, make certain that the, the businesses have the support to get people back to work. Secure accountability. Now, here is where he took shots directly at the Liberal Party of Canada, and rightfully so. He's talked about setting up tougher legislation to 
for anti-corruption, for example, tougher legislation to ensure transparency, which is a direct shot at Justin Trudeau, uh, promising to be the most transparent government in Canadian history, where they have been the least transparent. He talked about securing mental health. Kudos for that, because mental health has become a huge problem in Canada through the pandemic. He talked, secure the country. He says, we need to make certain our manufacturing sector is ready not only to create vaccines for Canadians, to create PPP, PPE, sorry, and in order to help keep Canadians safe. He talked about the our global health warning system that the Trudeau government has shut down and restoring that. So he mean, made a lot of good points. And then, of course, secure the economy. Again, he said, and he said, and he's repeated this point several times throughout the last month, is get people working in all sectors, in all parts of the country. And he even talked, uh, took some shots at this government saying, this government couldn't secure vaccines, they couldn't get us enough PPE, and they can't even get a pipeline built, suggesting that a Conservative Party government would, well, We'll wait and see on that one, I guess. But a good five-point plan. So I actually will have to give Mr. O'Toole a lot of credit for this speech. It was a very, very good speech. I like his five-point plan. Of course, it's vague, which they always are. But he's on the right track. Will it help him win the election? In my opinion, no. But it's early. We haven't gotten to a campaign yet. But let me just tell you my prediction, Canada. Get used to Justin Trudeau. Okay, I told you I would talk about the Maverick Party. We're getting almost up to our time here, so I will quickly touch on our friends in the Maverick Party. Now, Jay Hill, who is the interim leader of the Maverick Party and a veteran in the House of Commons, he was a member of parliament for the Peace Region of Northern British Columbia, Northeast British Columbia. He was a initially a reform MP, then he became Canadian Alliance, and he was actually left the Canadian Alliance, was part of the Democratic Representative Caucus, I believe they called themselves, the 12 rebels who stepped away from the Canadian Alliance, brought back into the Conservative Party of Canada by Stephen Harper. Um, so Mr. Hill's been a, been a veteran. He's been around for a long time, which makes me wonder why on earth he would make such a idiotic suggestion as when the election is called the maverick party is only going to run candidates in safe conservative party of canada ridings where they would have absolutely no chance of winning and also no chance of splitting the vote enough where the conservative party candidate would lose and when I had mentioned this to Lewis, his immediate reaction was, so why even run if you have no intention of winning? And that's a fair question. Why even run just so you can lose? It makes, to me, you're making no statement whatsoever by electing nobody. But that seems to be the Maverick Party's goal. Now, here in Saskatchewan, in our provincial election in October, we had the Buffalo Party, 
which ran on that exact playbook. They ran candidates, only 15 candidates in in very, very safe Saskatchewan party ridings where they had no chance of winning and no chance of peeling enough votes away from Saskatchewan party candidates that they would cause any of them to lose. And it actually kind of worked for them because in a lot of those ridings, they placed second and very strong thirds and got garnered a lot of attention and actually secured a large number of votes. So if perhaps Mr. Hill and the Maverick Party are looking at running just so they can get some attention, maybe mission accomplished. We'll have to see. All right, Canada, I'm going to leave it there for this week. I do want to thank you very much for joining us here on Canadian Common Sense, and we will look forward to talking to you again next week. Good night.